Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Uh, So we're going to be in Matthew 1 this morning, starting our first of the New Testament Bible studies. Uh, It starts off saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So the book of Matthew does not call itself the book of Matthew. It calls itself the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's an interesting name. But first, context. Because we're starting off with the beginning of the New Testament, a little bit of context on this. Um, uh, When Matthew writes, the context of this is they've just spent 400 years with nothing from God. So Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament, there's a, 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 there was a Maccabean revolt where the Jews tried to throw off the Romans. Um, but they have essentially had this dry spell from God. He hasn't spoken through a prophet. He has, he's left the Old Testament as its own set of books. There has not been a new judge that has risen up to save Israel. They have not had a king rise to power. Uh, in fact, the kingly line is kind of destroyed. But everything in the Old Testament points to a Messiah that the Jews will have a king. So popping up around the Middle East are these people that are false messiahs that start showing up because it's about that time. And if you look at the prophecies, something's supposed to happen at this point in history. And that something that's supposed to happen is that there's a messiah that's going to come. So when Matthew's writing, he's writing uh, largely in in light of that new king that's going to show up. He's trying to say with the book of Matthew... Israel, look, we have a new Messiah, and here's the Messiah, which makes Matthew a great hinge book. It is the last book of the Old Testament, and it's not the first of the Gospels written, right? We believe that Matthew was written in about 50 AD, but it is written specifically to Jewish people, and it is summarizing and concluding everything from the Old Testament. So Matthew's trying to say, look, the entire Old Testament points to Jesus Christ as Messiah, And every prophecy of the Old Testament about Messiah has been fulfilled in the first and second coming of Jesus. So that's the thesis of his book. And as an academic person, when I recognize a thesis statement when I see one, and Matthew writes in the form of a thesis statement. He is a highly educated guy. We're going to see that in chapter 1 with his genealogy, um, which speaks to who he said he was. Um, it says in Matthew 9, 9, this is really the only mention of Matthew in Matthew, as Jesus passed forth hence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. He was a tax collector. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. So that's a stunning interaction between the two. And that's really Matthew's testimony. Jesus came up and called me and I followed him. But Matthew, as a Jewish person, would have then been looking for and expecting a Messiah and ready to follow him when he showed up. Matthew, as a person, is also probably one of the most hated people in the Jewish culture. Completely ostracized because he's serving the Romans as a tax collector. If you've watched The Chosen, they do a great job of setting that up. They really do. And I'm not saying The Chosen is gospel or anything like that, but they do a nice job of showing that nature of Matthew being distinct from the Jewish culture, but also somebody who really needs and loves and wants to follow the Lord. So... Um, Matthew is probably the most widest shared of the Gospels in the first century. It is the one that the Jews passed around to each other, and the Jews were probably more literate than all the other cultures around them, even the Romans. Like a greater percentage of Jewish people knew how to read and write. So Matthew became the most widely disseminated, which means it is, this might be why they put it first in the New Testament, is because it is the, the, the least challenged when it comes to authenticity. They had the most copies of it. Um, that were, were kept. Uh, so there's a large degree of confidence in the fidelity of it, in the authorship of it, in, who, in that it is still what it was when Matthew wrote it, of all the different Gospels. It being a complete treatise of Jesus and Nazareth being the j- legit y- Yeshua Messiah, Matthew assumes that his audience knows Jewish traditions, they know Jewish words, they, he makes a reference to David, Abraham, he makes a reference to heaven, um, 
and he assumes that the Jewish tradition understands all of that. So he, he thinks that you're Jewish people when you read his book. So we have to learn a little bit about Jewish custom and, and, and traditions when we do that. In Matthew 15, 2, he assumes the custom. He doesn't translate the word raka in 522, so he uses common vernacular language. He's assuming that the, the people reading it are his contemporaries too. I don't think when Matthew wrote this, he thought he was writing it for the next 2,000 years. He thought he was trying to document and record that Jesus was the Messiah to his own generation. It assumes that you know the Old Testament. 121, is a, in this chapter we'll see that, where they say, call his name Jesus. It is assuming that you know and understand the promises of the Old Testament, what's there. Uh, he uses the phrase dozens of times, that it was fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. He's assuming you know what he's talking about when he says fulfilled. And sometimes he doesn't even give the Old Testament reference. And a large part of that is they didn't have their phone on their iPhone. They had to go down to the temple to make a quote. So it was a lot of work to do that. So he would just say things that would be assumed. There's unexplained ceremonies. This is Chuck Missler. Matthew is full of unexplained ceremonies, unachieved purposes, unappeased longings, and unfulfilled prophecies. Matthew just assumes you're Jewish and you get it all uh, when you do that, which makes it a great book uh, it, it, for us to study. Uh, Matthew's name was originally Levi. He's introduced as Matthew, the tax collector, in, in chapter in 9.9. Uh, tax collector is in 10.3. He's a public servant. Um, this would have given him some skills that help him to write this book. As a Roman tax collector, he'd be fluent in Latin. He'd be fluent in Aramaic, which is the language being spoken there, and he'd be fluent in Greek. So this is a guy that would be not only fluent speaking those languages, but writing those languages in order to do the tax collecting job with the different groups of people in that area. Um, he would have been absolutely, I already said, despised by the Jews. Um, and, and we see that again and again too. Tax collectors in Matthew eleven nineteen are grouped as sinners. They are defined as sinners. So Matthew perceives that his role as a tax collector was his past life as a sinner. So he even hates himself for what he did. In 1817, Matthew 1817, tax collectors are associated with heathen, so on their way to hell. <laughs> and in, in chapter 21, verse 31 and 32, tax collectors are associated with harlots. They are, they've sold themselves in order to get what they want and to make money. Um, so Matthew's self-perception of his role as a tax collector is not mentioned. What's interesting is that the other, the other Gospels don't actually um, call him a tax collector or even mention that about him. So his friends, his buddies, don't put that title on Matthew. They, they define him as a godly man. It's only in the book of Matthew that you get that other moniker that's thrown on there. But Mark and John don't call Matthew a tax collector and they don't, they don't go after him like that. Levi then as a name is usually associated with his sinful past. And Matthew seems to be a new name that he got somewhere along the line. Jesus gave Peter a new name. And it seems like Jesus just does this with people he loves. And sometimes he gives them a new name so they can start a new life. And Saul became Paul in the same kind of way. So it's a gift of the Lord. Um, and it's a history. So when we see the first sentence, I know there's a lot of setup on this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is not being written like a biography. It's being written like a thesis. So there are biographies in the Bible, and we can see those kind of more intimate connections like the book of Mark. But Matthew is writing as a historian. In verse 1-1, one, one, verse one eighteen, it's the history of Jesus that he's trying to document, and he's trying to write it down. So if we take it at face value, we understand it that way. So the structure of Matthew. Uh, chapter 1 to chapter 4 is kind of the opening Jesus is here and he fulfills a lot of prophecy. And then there are a series of narratives that come in Matthew. Uh, five and six is the definition of the kingdom. Chapter 10 is him preaching the kingdom. Chapter 13 is how the kingdom grows and how it develops. Chapter 16 is how the kingdom gets established with the cross. And then chapter 18 is how you enter the kingdom. And chapters 24 and 25, what to expect of the kingdom. And in between each of those narratives are miracles that back up everything he's saying. So Matthew's like, here's a, here's a sermon, and here's Jesus actually showing power behind that sermon. And so you, that's the cycle that he structures things in. It is not a timeline, and it's not chronological. So you get people that critique that things come out of order in Matthew from the other Gospels. 
they're not out of order. They didn't have the same chronological expectation in Jewish culture that they do today. Um, so when we write biographies, we assume they're in order. Uh, that's actually changing a little bit in the movies. We'll do movies with scenes out of order in the timeline. Matthew's trying to make a point, so he's setting up stories and narratives that go with each of the points, even though they're out of chronological order. Um, so the core issue, does Messiah give us a path to heaven and is Jesus the king? That's what the question Matthew has as he sets this whole thing up. If Jesus is actually God, then his teaching and work becomes central to everything else we do. It's really important. So there's some themes in the book of Matthew. A uh, few of the themes are, well, if you look at all four Gospels, Mark is like Jesus as servant, and he's here to serve and here to care for people. Luke is like Jesus is the Messiah of the planet. He's the global Messiah. And John is more like God is our personal and intimate Messiah that we can each have a relationship with. Matthew, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's, he's fulfilling the Old Testament, which is, I, I think, why it makes a nice hinge book. It finishes the Old Testament. It begins the New Testament. And that's why it's been put there consistently since they've started ordering the books. Uh, second theme is that the Pharisees and Sadducees are actually corruptors of God, God's kingdom. That what God intended for the priesthood and what he intended for his people has been so corrupted and usurped by the Pharisees and Sadducees that it's, that it's irredeemable that Jesus came to start something new at the exact moment in history where the Jews had utterly failed to do what God told them to do. And the culmination of that is this Pharisee and Sadducee system that was part of the Jewish church. So Matthew's pretty hard on the Pharisees and Sadducees. They get called names. He's very critical of them. He's at the same time extremely loving of the Jewish people. And this is where I think anti-Semitism gets built sometimes is you see this critique of Pharisees and Sadducees and people conflate that with the Jewish people. Matthew's very loving towards the Jewish people. In fact, he's writing this for the Jewish people. He's saying the leadership has gone awry, which we see oftentimes in modern history. Jesus as king, I've already talked about that. The word kingdom gets used 50 times throughout the book of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven, 32 times. Uh, it starts with John the Baptist in, in chapter 3, verse 2, and then Jesus says it himself in chapter 4, verse 17. An unmistakable theme of Matthew is that there's a new kingdom being built, and it's not the kind of kingdom that the earth recognizes. There's a new banner to follow, which fulfills Numbers 2. The Israelites followed their banners into battle. We've talked about that in our evening Bible study. But there's now a new banner, and Matthew sets that up. There, there's the banners of the 12 tribes, but now there's a banner for Christ. There's a new allegiance that we have, which fulfills Daniel 2.44. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a new kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break into pieces and consume all the other kingdoms, and it stands forever and ever. Heaven and God's plan from Daniel is being fulfilled according to Matthew. So we have to understand that he's setting up a, a new nation. It's a revolution of sorts from the world's kingdoms. Um, so when, when we see the end of the book of Matthew, the very end thought is this battle cry to go and make disciples in all nations. And Matthew is basically saying there's a new kingdom and you're being recruited as a soldier in that kingdom and it's time to go. And so it ends on this great up note as a book. Um, and we see this attention being called. Uh, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's right here, it's right now, you just got to join the kingdom, sign up for the army. Uh, and when that happens, uh, God keeps track of it. So one of the final thoughts, and this just blew me away, Steph and I were doing Bible study, and it got kind of mentioned off to the side, and it just hit me when I was studying Matthew, and then we'll actually get into the text. Malachi 3.16, very end of the Old Testament, it says this, and I think this leads right into Matthew. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. God keeps track of every thought we have about the kingdom of God. And this idea that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, they actually met and talked to one another. And when we do that, God records that and puts it in our pro column. Right? And that idea that God is meticulous, he keeps records, 
There's a book of remembrance that Malachi mentions. And those who meditate on his name, God hears those meditations. And he says, that person loves me. And if you talk to one another about his word, he loves to hear that. So when Matthew is writing this, it's an act of worship. He's absolutely plodding through the Old Testament and, and trying to set it up. So when it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Greek, now we do Greek, Biblios, Biblos Genesos, book of beginning. The version of him saying that is exactly the same as the book of beginning being used in Genesis. Matthew is starting a New Testament here. And he's starting it in, in the Hebrew book of beginning is the, the, the Greek version of the, the Genesis or the, the starting point of things. So this is the starting point of a new kingdom, not the entire existence of the world. Genealogies in Genesis are in Exodus, Numbers 1, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah, and Ezra. That's his source material. So if you want to go back and do Bible studies, you can find everything in this genealogy in those Old Testament genealogies, pulling everything from the Old Testament. Christ in the Greek is Christos. It means anointed as you would anoint a king. So when he says Jesus Christ, it is Jesus the anointed, Jesus the king. Um, he's not saying Jesus Messiah. He's not saying Jesus Savior. He's saying Jesus Christ or a Christos anointed. Uh, kings get anointed. Uh, and we have seen in the Old Testament over 300 references to God bringing his own king to rule, the, rule his own people. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David tells the reader that Christ is the king in the line of David. Um, he uses this uh, first sentence firmly to make his thesis statement. The promised king, son of David, is here for the Jews, son of Abraham. Abraham being the father of the Jews. Starting with Abraham is not then just Jewish. Um, it is also promising that there's going to be something for the whole world because in the Old Testament, Genesis 3, 12, 13, God promised Abraham that out of Abraham, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis twenty two eighteen, 18, in, in your seed, Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So when Matthew mentions Abraham to a Jewish person, Abraham is somebody who was supposed to give birth to somebody, a seed, a singular seed that would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. So in doing that, he's fulfilling those promises too. Verse 2, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Amminadab, Amminadab begot Nation, Nation begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. So there's 14 generations there. All of them are famous. Every Jewish person would know the stories that go behind all of these. David gets named the king. Again, that's the emphasis of the genealogy. That's the thesis. Matthew took uh, verses 3 and 5 from the book of Ruth, <coughs> verse 4, if you want your cross-references. Matthew added the mothers to the list from the accounts in Genesis and Numbers and Exodus. So in the Old Testament, the moms aren't mentioned at all, but in Matthew's genealogy, they are. This makes Matthew stand out because any Jewish person reading this would say, why did he add the women? So... In this sense, even though the Jewish people amongst ancient cultures were probably the most respectful of women in the ancient world, Matthew takes it up another level and puts them in the genealogies. So this idea that the kingship is through a Jewish patriarchy, but the patriarchy is laced with key women in the Bible that were major stories in the Old Testament, right? So this is a radical departure from all the Old Testament genealogies. They are, however, part of the line of Messiah, and Matthew's saying the Old Testament wrote about Tamar, Rahab, Ruth because they're important to this line, and God was always doing this line. It was planned from the beginning this way. So Tamar, just to give you a sense of how radical this really is, Tamar was uh, a prostitute. She was a father-in-law. Uh, she was a prostitute to her father-in-law, Judah, to bring forth Perez and Zerah in Genesis 38. She was widowed and she was called cursed, yet for Matthew, she's clearly in the line of kings, which makes you think, why would you mention a prostitute in the line of kings? What's the point of this? 
Rahab, a Gentile Canaanite prostitute who God took extraordinary measures for to save her from judgment and get her out of a lifestyle of prostitution, Joshua 2 and Joshua 6, that she put out the scarlet rope, always part of the plan for Messiah. Ruth was adopted from Moab. She was also a Gentile until her conversion out of the covenant of Israel, Ruth chapter 1. You know, when Matthew puts Ruth in there, it's like, oh, that's why the book of Ruth is in the Old Testament. Matthew's saying it was all part of God's plan. And these books that we have, these records that we have are relevant. So uh, she was widowed. She's loyal to Naomi, if you remember the story. She's rejected by her kin. The people that were supposed to claim Ruth rejected her until Boaz showed up and he redeems and becomes her kinsman redeemer on behalf of the Lord's law and how he says it should work. So you've got someone saved by a, someone who's cursed, someone who's saved by a scarlet rope, someone who's, a, who, who's claimed by their kinsman redeemer. It's like Matthew's telling a story with these people when he weaves them in. We also get Bathsheba coming up, uh, who was uh, victimized by David uh, and committed adultery with him in 2 Samuel 11. Um, Matthew refers to her in a kind of a unique way, saying she's Uriah's wife instead of naming her by name, which might be an attempt to focus on the fact that Uriah was not an Israelite, but he was a Hittite. So not only do we have women being weaved into this genealogy, but all of these women represent people groups that aren't Jewish in the line of kings. No Hebrew doubts that it goes from Abraham to David in this line, but they all just kind of ignore the fact that there were Gentiles in that line. And they conveniently don't mention that those Gentile relationships were brought in by women. But God had that all as part of the plan. And when you weave them in here, they also kind of share a story of salvation. In the sense that David um, widowed Bathsheba, he also claims Bathsheba and takes her as his own wife. And it's her son that becomes the king in the next line. That's not an accident that Matthew's forcing the Jewish reader to see women and to see Gentiles as part of the, the undisputed line of kings from Abraham to David. So all four of these women are chosen by God, they're redeemed by God, and they're claimed into the family of God. So if legal lineage has always been recognized, he's, Matthew's pointing out that when someone's adopted into a family, that's always been recognized as part of God's law. And it's always been the case that Gentiles can be adopted into God's family, which is going to be Matthew's point later on too. So Jesus then becomes the legal inheritor of the throne, even though his father's blood, Joseph's blood, isn't there. The Holy Spirit made a a virgin birth happen with Mary. But Mary gets claimed by Joseph in the same way that Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba do. See what he's doing there? Like it's no accident. And so when he does this genealogy and he works his way through the who is heir to the throne, he's pointing out in the first 14 that heir to the throne can actually be an adopted state. In fact, it, ha- it was, God's already considered that as a legal way to have the throne move through people or the promise of Abraham moving to David. So that's all pretty cool. <clears throat> in Titus 3.9, we're told... <laughs> to avoid foolish genealogies and genealogies and contentions and striving about the law for they're unprofitable and they're vain. The Jewish people love to argue about genealogies. So one may say, Sean, you're getting way too deep into these names. This is exactly what Jewish people would do. They would sit and argue and quibble about how these names are structured and how they're set up because they'd compare that to God's law in order to try to determine who Messiah was. So where... There are foolish questions in genealogies. I don't think Matthew is part of what Titus is talking about. This is the genealogy we're supposed to study and get into. So Matthew's just contributing this genealogy that when people read it, it changed their lives. In fact, I remember um, when we were uh, studying Matthew and someone came up and kind of shared the story of that he shared this with a Jewish person who had never really read the New Testament before. And the Jewish person finished the genealogy and they converted their life to Jesus Christ. Which is part of what motivates me to really understand this genealogy because if it's that powerful of a statement to a Jewish person, I kind of want to know what that statement is. So just the first 14, 
All the things he's doing with women, Gentiles, adoption, those themes are part of what he's making his case as. And he's, this case is backed up by the entire Old Testament. So the idea here that he is, it's not just simply trying to elevate women. He's also making a point about this idea that any pagan culture can have people that God chooses and redeems and brings into it, which is exactly what Jesus is going to do. Here's another thing. Even though the Jewish people would dispute and argue about genealogies, there is no recorded dispute with Matthew's genealogy. In other words, it's meticulous. And if you look at Jewish records, they would argue and dispute about genealogies. Like Titus was right. There's plenty of them and plenty of them. But when it comes to Matthew's, nobody put up a, a dispute to this genealogy that's recorded or kept. It doesn't mean there wasn't one. It just means that if they could have, they would have, and they would have widely disseminated this to challenge Matthew's genealogy. But at least on the genealogy, there's really no argument. So anyways, it's perfect, is, is, is I think the argument Matthew's going to make, but we'll get into that in a sec. Um, God's grace and compassion for the unwanted is clear in the first 14, but it gets combined with perfection because there's 14 of them. 14 in the Jewish is actually 7-7, seven, seven, uh, which is where we get the, uh, um, where we get the word, uh, oh, I'm sorry. What's Jewish for good luck? I got no. Yeah, I think it's mazel, right? I got this somewhere in my notes. I just can't find it. Uh, mazel, when you write it out, is actually 7-7. Seven, seven. It's the same word. Um, so it, it is this idea of, of to have blessing or good lucks. And this word seven is uh, um, perfection or divine perfection. God made the world in seven days. Uh, it is his, when he does something and accomplishes it, it's perfect. Uh, when you emphasize or double something in the, in the Jewish, it is to perfect, perfect. It is to make it more perfect. It's to put emphasis on it. So the number 14 is no accident, and Matthew's even going to point that out when we get done with the genealogy. Uh, the rest of verse 6. David the king, again, he gets that moniker, begot Solomon, who by her who had been the wife of Uriah, Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, he started to jump around. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Amon. Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. This is the whole book of Kings, Chronicles. He sums it all up in a few verses. There's 14 generations from David to Babylon. Abraham to David. David to Babylon. 14, 14. Perfect, perfect. Perfect, perfect. If God does perfect, 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 it makes you wonder what you go from Babylon to Jesus. Is If that's perfect, perfect too, like this is a completely organized and lined up uh, genealogy. So, but here's a here's the thing. This is where people get into arguments. Matthew in verse 9, if you see Uzziah, Joram begot Uzziah, actually, there's three generations between Joram and Uzziah. So people jump on that. I think you don't have understanding of Hebrew traditions and they'll be like, that's a mistake. There's actually Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah that come in between Joram and Uzziah in the Old Testament. Um, however, Matthew's solving a major problem that the Jews had with this because in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 37, write that down, the Lord, Lord destroyed the works of Amaziah, or um, of, of Joram because he allied himself with Ahaziah, the Lord destroyed your works. So to destroy someone's works means they don't get to be part of the genealogy of the king. So they are erased from history according to that line. So when you're trying to do the line of the Jewish king, that creates a little bit of problem. Um, if, if we skip kings there, then we have this kind of issue. Matthew just skips them. And that was perfectly acceptable in, in Hebrew society. By skipping them, he also skips the curse that went with those kings and three generations afterwards. So he uh, eliminates that from the count, and now we're at a perfect 14. Almost like God kept his word, and he skips those three kings because they were cursed and they weren't part of the record. So God just extended the timeline a little bit. But it keeps it at 14 generations while solving the problem of the curse. Verse 11, we see the same thing happen. Josiah begot Jeconiah. Um, 
actually the sons, uh, we skip one. If you go to First Chronicles 3.16, the sons of Jehoiakim were Jeconiah and his son Zedekiah, his son. So there's a legit claim here that Jehoiakim is just skipped. Like Matthew just skips him. And he's doing it in part to get his perfect 14, but he's getting his perfect 14 by following the rules of what God set up. He skipped the three that were cursed. And then in this, here's Jeremiah 36, 30. Um, Therefore says the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out in the day, in the heat and in the night of the frost. Matthew solves that curse by not including him in the, in the, in the uh, passage. So he doesn't get to be part of the line of Messiah. And when Matthew writes this, he's solving major Jewish problems when it comes to genealogies. This is Matthew's argument, that you take the cursed people out and it's actually 14, 14, 14. It's perfect. So if we obey what God says and just cast this person out and they don't have any business with the throne of David, it doesn't mean that the legal right doesn't still go through them, but they don't get to be named in the list. And when you take them out, it becomes perfect. It doesn't become confused. And this is where Jewish people would have been like, oh, that's amazing. This is amazing. This works. So the result, the Jewish people ignored these people and ignored their line. Part of the result is after Babylon, they stopped tracking some of these things. They kept the genealogies just for the tribe of Judah because they still had a legal right to the claim of the king. But when they saw things where people weren't elevated or there wasn't God's blessing, then they kind of felt that wing of the family wasn't important anymore. But it is important if you think of the women being mentioned in the beginning as being redeemed by God and still part of the legal throne. Then when we get to the third set, he's taking a lesser known line of inheritance of the king, but they're lesser known because they became poor people. They, be, they were cast out. They lived in Babylon. They didn't have the opulence and wealth or obvious blessing of God for 14 generations. And what you get is a carpenter who's sleeping in a manger because he can't find a place to sleep. So Joseph's family wasn't highly celebrated as in the line of kings. He didn't live like a prince. But part of that was because the Jews had rejected that line or that path that became so confusing because of these cursed people. And they're like, we're never going to find Messiah in the genealogies. But they would argue over it. But Matthew says, actually, if you just skip those people, it's a perfect 14. And he makes that case. So there's no blood descendant for the line of kings, but there's still a legal descendant. And Luke's going to argue with Matthew into his own genealogy and say, no, actually, there's a blood descendant too, but we're going to go this way through the genealogy. And he just avoids all the curses. And he comes to the line of Mary's family and says, no, there's still a bloodline here too, but that's, that's different. So the Jews know that he's there, but he's not mentioned. Uh, the Jews know that the women are part of the story, but they don't mention him. God in, or Matthew includes everything and still makes a legal claim that's absolutely legit without the blood being part of it from Abraham to David, from David to Babylon. It's not about the blood claim, it's about the legal claim because that's how kingships transfer. Luke then um, does his thing, goes through Nathan. Uh, Jesus then, because he was of the house and lineage of David, Luke 2.4, is then confirmed as both king and high priest. And we'll get to that when we get to the book of Luke. Um, the idea in 2 Samuel 17, the house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. In 2 Samuel, the promises, and this is an odd thing in the Old Testament when you get to this, why does it say your house and your kingdom shall be established as two different things? But when you read Matthew and Luke's genealogies, one establishes the house, one establishes the kingdom. And they do it perfectly. And it all comes together. And these confusing things in the Old Testament absolutely fit. So, all right. So we'll get through here. Legally, Jehoiakim then is cursed out of it. So Matthew skips him. That's what we need to know now, which makes the number exactly 14. Then we get to verse 12. After they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah sought Shealtiel. Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abuid. Abuid begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Akim. Akim begot Eluid. Eluid begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathan. Mathan begot Jacob. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now we have the fifth woman included, but she's included exactly like the other four women were included. 
um, of which of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ or the Anointed. So, 14 generations from Babylon to Jesus, according to Matthew, is perfect, 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 perfect. That's six perfects lined up here. Uh, the difference. Um, in this set, the, for verses 12 through 16, is that these are li- largely obscure, irrelevant people, and the only place Matthew would have got these names is by going down to the temple and looking at the temple records, which were destroyed after Jesus died. So the, the window of finding these names and documenting them uh, would have been extremely hard and happened within Jesus' generation. So, yeah, how to unpack all this? It's crazy. The number seven being divine perfection is then done in groups of two, emphasis, 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 it three times. Three times being the Jewish number of completion. I think this is where Jewish people got saved. So perfect, three to- perfect in combinations three times means divine perfection is completed. And when it's done, in, you also take it out, it's divine perfection in human form. The number six is for humanity or the falling of humans, or there's six days in a week that humans are supposed to work, right? So the number six is associated with humans. So you have the divine perfection completed for humans when you go seven, three, six, shazam. It's perfect symmetry, according to Matthew. Um, The legal lineage of Joseph, undisputed. Luke takes a different path, but Matthew's trying to nail down who should be king right now and who has a claim to the kingship and the throne. So if Joseph has a a legal lineage to the tribe of Judah, then he has a legal claim to the throne. It might be very, very small, but he has a claim. So there's lots of characters to note. There's the five women. They're all prominent. He ties together the whole Old Testament. He does it in these little verses, uh, and God doesn't always use prominence in what he's doing. He sets that up in the first set, but then he uses it in the third set, a bunch of non-prominent people. Verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. He goes out of his way to change the tone here. It says, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so. But then when we get to this verse, it says, of whom was born. It doesn't say Joseph begot Jesus. He goes out of his way to make that happen. So in that sense, he's adopted by Joseph, just like the people in the first set. And we don't dispute Ruth and Boaz and Tamar. And we don't dispute them that they're in the line of David. So why would you dispute the fact that Joseph claimed Mary, even though she was of questionable background? right? He still claims her and redeems her, and that's perfectly legal. It's happened four other times in the line of David. Matthew's making that claim. The word whom there in, in the Greek is really a specific word. It's in a feminine, uh, the Greek's great. Old Testament, we got exactly what we needed with the Hebrew, and it's like God needed a different language for the New Testament. Greek, every single word is packed with meaning. It's unlike the Hebrew where it's like left open for prophecy, right? It can mean this or it can mean this, and it means both. But in the Greek, the word whom there is in the feminine singular form. Of feminine singular form was born Jesus. One person, and she happened to be female, was born Jesus. So Matthew is undeniably making the claim of a virgin birth here. He just does it in a Jewish way. Strong claim of a virgin birth. And he's making that case to where, again, that's not the thing that got disputed in the first century. The thing that got disputed in the first century is whether or not Jesus was Messiah. Um, Verse 17, Matthew's driving the point home that I've been setting up. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity of Babylon, 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until Christ, 14 generations. Matthew edits the genealogy to make the numbers work. He omits people that were cursed, and it comes out perfect. He assumes Jewish readers understand all of this. Like, this is all the stuff that they would bicker about when they were 15 in little Jewish school. Like, so he assumes that everybody gets this. It's the first massive claim that he makes in 17 is that it all has perfect symmetry, that that's who God is. The entire Old Testament uses numbers that have these meanings, So literally when we get these numbers thrown in here and he says 14, 14, 14, 14, 
it's complete, the work is done, that's three times. It's 14 is written 7-7, seven, seven. it's divine completeness, and it is the plan of God for humanity, three sevens equals six. If you do 666, that's the number of the beast or the number of an imperfect man three times, which is completely horribly man-like, right? That's the number of the beast. When you do seven three times, it's perfect and complete godness, right? So you may or may not get into Hebrew numerology um, or uh, all of this, but the Hebrews would have. This is exactly how they would have read this book. They would have looked at these numbers and seen literally these counts lining up. Uh, seven days of creation for God, seven laws from Noah, there's seven temple lamps, the Sabbath is on the seventh day, the Jubilee is on the seventh year. It's just all over the Old Testament. And the Jewish people would have heard that when they got here. So when we see mazel, 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 that is the word, seven, seven is written mazel, um, it is this complete stability, it is finished, it's done, it's memorizable. It would have been divinely perfect, 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 the divine plan for humans is Jesus Christ. This is it. So uh, when Jesus received the sour wine, he says at the end of his life, this is John 1930, it is finished. What's finished? God's plan for humanity. It's finished. And when he lays that, and, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So it's not just 14 times three. It's also this seven times six. It is God's plan for humanity. God gives himself as a sacrifice for sin so that there's a completely perfect work of God for humanity that can be carried out. It's beautiful. And a Jewish person would sit and meditate on this and just, this is the divinely perfect man that showed up at the end of 14, 14, 14, 14. The end of mazel, mazel, mazel is Jesus the Christ. He's perfect. He's the culmination of the whole Old Testament. He is the finished part of the story. It is finished when Jesus dies on the cross. No matter how you add this up, this is awesome Hebrew stuff. Like they would have gone crazy over this. This is why a Jewish person that spent their whole life digging into these genealogies would read Matthews and go, I need to follow this king. Like this is my king that I need to follow. I need to learn more about Jesus because Matthew's right. It's all right there. Um, Jesus makes this argument that the stunning claim that not only is he the king, but he's also God, that he's a divine, a divine divinity in man. And Matthew makes that claim through his genealogy very subtly. Uh, John 8, 5, John doesn't make it subtly at all. The book of John, the gospel of John, make, connects Jesus with God everywhere. He doesn't do it subtle because if you're not Hebrew, you didn't get the subtleties of what we just read. Um, the Jews said to Jesus, you're not 50 years old yet, and you said you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed he was God, nothing short of God. So these 14s, this div divine perfection, uh, is absolutely what Matthew's claiming here. He was not just a good teacher. Good teachers don't claim that they're gods. <laughs> that I know of, you know, maybe Bobby, Bonnie, you've heard of some, but he's not a wise sage. I've heard that said about Jesus. He's just a wise prophet kind of guy, like like Gandhi or something. But he's not that because wisdom doesn't lead to death on a cross. Like that's not worldly wisdom and the outcome of it. Jesus wasn't just a prophet because he proclaimed himself as the fulfillment of prophecies, not just a messenger for God on them. Uh, so the, this idea that God is anything short of, or that Jesus is anything short of God is just not part of the Gospels. Um, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, verse 18. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph and they came together and she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, before they came together, that's a big point. Um, before they came together, she was found with the child of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew makes it super clear this wasn't Joseph's child, does it in multiple ways. We got to understand Jewish, because it says his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. That word betrothed means something very specific in Hebrew culture. Hebrew culture, you didn't get engaged, then married. You got engaged, then betrothed, then married. And again, he assumes that you're Hebrew and that you know this. Uh, so Matthew does that a lot. Um, engagement is when the parents get together and they say, we think our two kids should get married. This can happen when the kids are like two or three years old. 
and the two families will just agree that these kids will be married someday. That's an engagement. Betrothal, as they get older, and you're about a year out from when they want them to marry, maybe 15, 16 years old, two parents get together, and they exchange a dowry, and they pay money to each other, and they make a legal contract for marriage called betrothal. Once the legal contract is made, they can call each other husband and wife, but they don't come together yet. They don't actually have sex. That happens when they get married, which is at the end of a celebration feast that both families have together. Usually betrothal's about a year, and they know the marriage is coming. And in that time, and this is just beautiful, we'll get to this later too, when you're betrothed to somebody, it's legally binding, but the husband goes back and prepares a place for the wife. There's a season between the betrothal and the marriage where there isn't a consummation or a wedding feast yet. And Jesus uses this imagery throughout Matthew. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when he says that, he's talking about a marriage betrothal. I've, at the death on the cross, he has paid the debt that's owed, the bride price. The dowry is paid. There's a legal contract that we can call on. But then he's going to come back a season later after he's prepared a place for his bride, and he's going to bring his bride and carry her away to that. So that imagery gets set up here with Mary and Joseph in verse 18. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. The two families had exchanged money before they came together. He actually throws that in there to make it very clear that they hadn't come together yet. And she was found with the Holy Spirit, with child of the Holy Spirit. So not a child of Joseph, but a child of the Holy Spirit. Holy here is the word hagios. It means pure, sacred. Spirit means pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma, which means breath. And in the Hebrew, uh, ruash was the word that was used in the Hebrew. It's the same idea. The breath of God or the spirit of God is both literal and figurative. It's a movement of the holy breath of God upon a person. Uh, The point that God did this is the point Matthew makes. He doesn't get into the biology of it. Uh, Luke gets into more of the biology of it. Like he gets a little more detail. But Matthew's like, Holy Spirit made the baby. Uh, Then Joseph and her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Because this is what you do if you're betrothed and your wife gets pregnant and you know you didn't do it. Generally, you put her away as an adulteress. But again, we have four women in the line of Jesus, in the line of the king, that that had committed adultery. So Matthew putting them in there is part of setting up everything with Mary. Isn't that cool? Um, so uh, it, call, it says in 19, Joseph, her husband, that title is given after betrothal. So that's because people say, well, if Joseph's her husband, then they should have already had sex. But that's a modern understanding of marriage, not a first century Hebrew understanding of marriage. Uh, to put her away secretly is because Joseph's a nice guy, right? And he's just going to put her away or divorce her. Uh, very quietly to try to help her keep her, uh, you know, to not embarrass her in front of everybody, uh, which is a a good thing and a kind thing for him to do. While he thought, is an interesting phrase in verse 20, but while he thought about these things, in other words, he's off by himself just stewing on it. And this is when God shows up to him. There's an image that Joseph, instead of reacting in anger, actually takes time to think which if you're looking at as guys, if we're looking at like an image of what God respects and chooses to be his adopted father on earth, this is a guy who thinks about things before he does stuff. He's intentional about what he does. He's just is already also there too. Um, so there's an, an intervention here that's essential to get Joseph on board because everything in the world says you just divorce somebody like this. An angel shows up. An angel of the Lord. Angel is not capitalized. It is uh, not a Christophany like we have in the Old Testament where we do see things like that being standing out. The word angel here still means messenger. Of the Lord means a Kyrios or Kyrios is uh, someone who owns thing or a master. So this is a messenger from the master or the one who owns things. Um, We don't know. Luke 1.19 suggests this might be Gabriel, but we don't get a name in the book of Matthew. We just know that it's a spiritual being that's coming from the owner of all things. Um, also note here that in, in, when the angel talks to Joseph, look at the title he gives to Joseph. The angel says, Joseph, son of David. So in the line of kings recognized by God. 
and Matthew making the genealogy case sets this up in a legal sense. But when a messenger from God calls Joseph son of David, that had to be striking to a carpenter, someone who doesn't consider themselves. Like Joseph didn't march around like a prince. I'm in the line of David. Or, you know, any guy in the tribe of Judah could have done that. But he, do, he didn't. He thought very little of himself. But the messenger of God actually thinks extremely highly of Joseph because he calls him son of David. You're in the line of David. Don't be afraid to take to, your, take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived of her is in the Holy Spirit. So the angel shares that with Joseph. This gets Joseph on board. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, image of, of this idea of God talking to women in the Old Testament. If you look in the book of Judges, we were right there, uh, where God goes to um, the wife before he goes to the husband. And in this case, he has to go to Joseph because um, Joseph needs to get on board too. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows after his, uh, oh, I'm sorry, verse 21, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Um, the idea here that um, it echoes uh, this image that Oh, by the way, the Judges 13 is where I was at. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I've said unto the woman, let her beware. Um, the angel's telling Joseph what's going to happen and that she's going to bear this son of God and that his name's going to be Jesus. And this is just, notice Jesus is in all capital letters. There's a reason for that. It's the Greek word Yeshua, um, which is Jehovah in the Hebrew. Jehovah is salvation is what the name means. We all, I'm guessing, know that. Um, it's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1, but only as Jesus Christ. Uh, Je Jehovah is anointed, right? And here it's Jesus as the proper name, Jehovah is salvation. Uh, Jesus would have been a really common name, uh, Colossians 4.11. Uh, there are other Jesuses. Uh, the point here, and the reason why it's all capitalized, is because when you do that all capitals in the Old Testament, that was done with the word Lord, Y-H-W-H, -H, Yahweh. And they would write it in all capitals without the vowels because the Lord's name wasn't something that a human being should write on paper. It was to be revered and sacred. So they didn't even write out, you know, Y-H-W-H. -H. We don't know if that's Jehovah or Yahweh. Those are pronunciations of a word that the Jews didn't give us the vowels for. So when Matthew does that with Jesus here, he's implying this is the name of God. And, and, and the Hebrew people would have either crucified him for doing this and tried to kill him, which he was martyred, uh, or you would start to say maybe this is God and this is the Messiah. So Yeshua, Jesus. The point of this is the meaning of it. Jehovah is salvation for he, Jehovah's salvation, will save humanity. Uh, so when he, he interprets it then for he will save his people from their sins in verse 21, he's actually giving that after the word Jesus as a definition. They shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he's, he's fleshing that out so we don't miss it at all. The, the point of this is what Matthew's trying to do. Uh, just because an angel says that Joseph should do something doesn't mean Joseph's going to do it. So the next verses are what Joseph does versus what he was told to do. And from the entire Old Testament, we see lots of people that disobey what they're told to do. So this is kind of a big moment here too. Uh, note that the story is told from Joseph's perspective here, and it's more from Mary's perspective in the book of Luke. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So that was 740 years ago that Matthew's quoting, uh, which is translated God with us. If you want the cross reference, it's Isaiah 7, verse 14. So Isaiah makes a prophecy 740 years ago that a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and so we have a problem here, right? Then Joseph being aroused from sleep did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, so he actually obeyed. And he took his wife, he took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and, she, and called his name Jesus. Joseph did everything he was told to do. God's perfect plan for 740 years, it was revealed, and even before that, if you go all the way back to Genesis 1.1, the plan was to make a son that would conquer sin and to beat sin. 
So this descriptive name that we get here, this announcement of the name Jesus at the end of 25, commanded in verse 21, this is a massive moment for the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, we never get the name, right? It's the name is always hidden through the whole Old Testament. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask something, why do you ask after my name, seeing that it's secret? In Judges 13, 18, this is where we're at in our evening Bible study, so it's easy references. The Christophany or the messenger of God there is Christ. And what's your name, they say. He says, why do you ask something that's too wonderful for you to know? And it's because God didn't reveal it in the Old Testament. So Jesus did as the angel told him to do. Uh, The key point here is that it's a virgin birth. It's a key to fulfilling these prophecies in Isaiah. Then he calls his name out. And the use of nouns here is just great. So notice the use of nouns shifts. When you refer to God, they would capitalize or they would add emphasis to things. Um, Matthew builds his claim, and Joseph is just a man. So then Joseph, being aroused from his seat, did as the Lord commanded him. Notice the small h on there. And he took to him, small h, his wife. He did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, all small her, and they're both human, human. And then they called his name Jesus, and your Bible should have that capitalized. He's claiming godhood on Jesus right in the first chapter. And he's placing it there in very subtle ways that, again, the Pharisees of the day, that's the sort of thing they would rend their clothes over. You're calling Jesus God. And Matthew's like, yeah, I'm absolutely calling him God. And I'm going to make that case. There's also some great symmetry in these verses, just great writing if you like the literary part of it. It says, it combines the virgin with did not know her, same concept said in different ways, bear a son in verse 22, brought forth her firstborn son in verse 24, the name Emmanuel is given in 23, and in 25 the name Jesus is given. Okay, so that's a problem we got to deal with. Why does the prophecy say Emmanuel when the name is Jesus? So Matthew's writing his book, and I think he draws those parallels between 22, 23, and 24, 25, because he's trying to make this case. This had to be something that they talked about. If his name's supposed to be Emmanuel in the Old Testament, why does it call Jesus when he shows up on earth? Because that was his name. Why is that the name the angel told Joseph to give him? The whole purpose is to look for Messiah, so you can't have him with one name and then get in another name that messes everything up. So yes, we have a problem. Or no, most people, Steph's just like, I just don't care that much, Sean. (laughs) So, all right. The entire Old Testament refers to a savior, one who will save, and he'll have one name. And that name is going to be called a number of other things throughout the Old Testament. You ever seen those posters where all the names of Jesus are on the poster? Like all of those names generally come from the Old Testament because they're descriptions of the name each time they come. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and he gave him the name above all other names, Philippians 2.9. The name he gets isn't revealed in the Old Testament. He gets a lot of other names that are descriptions of his name. Isaiah 9.6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. So it's the same root word in the Hebrew, Pala, as Emmanuel. Same root word. His name shall be called wonderful. It doesn't say he'll be called wonderful. It says his name will be wonderful. The name of Jesus is wonderful. And none of us have a problem with that. It makes total sense. But then he also says his name shall be called wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That's a whole list of names that his name will be called. Jesus will be called Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Everlasting Father. Jesus is the Mighty God. Jesus is the Counselor. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is wonderful. Does that make sense? So what Matthew's doing here is he's saying, we finally got the name. This is the name we were promised. Emmanuel's translation, God with us, is then an attribute of the name of Jesus. And is Jesus with us? As a, is God with us as a human? Yeah, that's the case he made in the genealogies. This is the fulfillment of it all. So the personal name isn't known in the Old Testament, but we do have clear references in the Old Testament to the name being something that will be revealed. What Matthew does at the end of chapter one is he's he's saying they shall they shall name him Emmanuel, but they they don't. Or um, Matthew doesn't translate the Old Testament they shall name him Emmanuel. He translates it but they shall call him his name Emmanuel. 
Does that make sense? Notice that they, when it says they shall call his name, which is known God with us, it's a quality. Jesus is now named the Lord is our salvation. And the way he's doing that is God is with us. He's going to show up in human form. So is he? Is he that God? That's the claim Matthew's making. That's his thesis statement that he's starting off with in his first chapter. The claim here, the announcement, the good news is this is the name that we've been waiting for for 5,000 years. That's the claim Matthew's making with the genealogy, with everything that's there, that we finally found out his name, and his name is Jesus. And we lift that name up. So when Matthew opens up with this new revelation that the Messiah's name is actually God is salvation, Jehovah, Yeshua, that God's going to save, his, save us himself, you think of that in light of the whole Old Testament. This goes back to his thesis. Jesus fulfilling every prophecy also fulfills every need that the Old Testament left open. It's perfectly planned by God. 14 three times, six sevens. The perfect plan of God is that God will be with humans. He's going to save us. And he's going to save us because we can't do it ourselves. They didn't have a priest that could do it in the Old Testament. There were none of the judges completed in the Old Testament. None of the kings did it in the Old Testament. None of the prophets finished the work in the Old Testament. So he'll be the holy consecrated version of our priest, our judge, our king, and our prophet all at the same time. So strap in. This is kind of what Matthew's saying. God is with us and he's going to do that. And I just want to... Flash through the Old Testament because I'm thinking the Hebrews would have done this. They would have been seeing that genealogy and all the stories would have came to mind. And this hinge point of the New Testament, really chapter one is the hinge. So this is a big deal that we get his name. Think of the Christophanies. It said, God says to Eve that a woman will create the one to right all evil of sin. He'll fix it. And he promises that out of Eve a seed will come. To Sarah, he says, I'll make you a nation that'll bear the savior of the world. To Jacob, he wrestles with them and guides him and corrects him. To Judah, he makes an internal king that'll come out of Judah. To Joshua, he says, I'm going to lead your armies and do it as, as your battle leader. To all the priests, he's going to, they're going to fail to do it on works and they're going to demonstrate the need for an eternal priest that can do it perfectly. To the judges, they're all going to fail and we're going to need a, a better judge, a more holy <laughs> judge. To all the kings, they're going to fall short. Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, they're all going to screw up. And then you get the prophets. The prophets reveal every aspect of the Savior, his life, his purpose, his plan, hundreds of different prophecies that Matthew's going to spend the rest of the book fulfilling. And he's just going to do it again and again and again. So when we get to Matthew, his first point in chapter 1 is that promise of the Old Testament, Savior, King, Priest, Prophet, God is going to have to ultimately do that himself. So God's with us and he is our salvation and his name is Jesus. And it's the opening of like the most epic story in human history. And he's spent 5,000 years building the anticipation to hear that name be spoken or written. And in chapter one, we get that name right there. His name's Jesus. He's arrived. He's with us. Imagine if you'd never heard this message before. Like you'd never heard of Jesus all you knew is Jewish history and you picked this book up and read that genealogy and heard the name get spoken and knew that this guy had risen from the dead, like, right? Because it's written after he's risen. You would have to stop and rethink your whole life. And you'd have to just, either this is true and I got to change everything or this is a lie and I got to throw this book away and try to go after Matthew. And those are really your only two solutions. Um, but I... I like to think that as people of God, we hear this story and it's a great relief. Oh, God's finally here and he's finally show up. So in chapter two, he's going to start with the methodical fulfilling of every single prophecy that Matthew can lay his eyes on. And he's going to go through and, and unpack that so that by the end of the book, you have absolutely no rational reason to not follow the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah and King. Amen. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your grace and your word. We thank you for Matthew. The kind of mind it took to put this together, Lord, uh, is just beyond us. And Lord, give us uh, some level of understanding to appreciate what you did through Matthew, uh, the way you prepared him and trained him. Lord, um, 
we know that Jesus was your perfect plan and we know it because we can look back over 2,000 years and see how your kingdom has grown, how your kingdom has come, and how your, your church across the earth has affected every nation on this planet. Uh, Lord, we know that your time's drawing nigh, uh, that the, we should start looking for you and we should, we should expect you to come soon. Uh, Lord, we don't have a day to waste and uh, Matthew felt the same way that there is, there is nothing that should keep us from following our King. So Lord, we serve you and we honor you, Lord, and we just, we pray that these words can sink into us, Lord. Help us to just elevate the value of your word when the whole world wants to devalue it. But we can see exactly how perfect Matthew was putting this all together and his claims and the way he made them. Uh, just spotless, Lord, and, and each word carefully chosen. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this clarity that we get when we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.